0: Low Burn Media, an evergreen podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless.
1: A suspect is in custody in connection with the stabbing
0: deaths of four University of Idaho students last month. Authorities sorted through thousands of tips and tracked Brian Koberger more than 2,000 miles away from the murder scene to his parents' home in Pennsylvania's Pocono Mountains. As Danya Backus reports, police
1: are
2: trying to determine a motive for the killings.
1: What I can tell you is we have an individual in custody who committed these um, horrible crimes.
2: After 19,000 tips in a quadruple murder case that drew nationwide attention.
1: Detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger
2: Koberger was arrested at his parents' Pennsylvania home. The 28-year-old is a PhD criminology student at Washington State University, just a 10-minute drive to the Idaho campus. Koberger is being held without bail and will spend the weekend in Pennsylvania. His extradition back to Idaho expected next week. The arrest caps nearly seven weeks of fear and frustration for families of the four murdered students.
1: This is the first bit of joy that we've had in close to seven weeks. We hope that there's, they've, picking, they've picked the right guy, and that gives us hope, and we haven't had hope for a long
0: time.
2: Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Mojin, Zaina Kornodal, and Ethan Chapin all stabbed multiple times as they slept inside this house near the campus. Despite surveillance videos showing the victims in the hours before they were murdered, and despite thousands of tips pouring into the Moscow Police Department, there appeared, at least publicly, to be little movement on the case. No suspects, no arrest. As the grief mounted and many students left campus, outside the house, the caution tape has finally come down.
1: No arrest will ever bring back these young students. However, we do believe justice will be found through the criminal process.
2: The district attorney who will eventually prosecute Kerberger once he's back in Idaho says an arrest does not mean an end to the investigation. They are still searching for tips from anyone who knows the suspect. We should know more after the extradition hearing Tuesday in Pennsylvania. For CBS Saturday Morning, Donya Backus, Moscow, Idaho.
0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is, of course, a Slow Burn Media Evergreen Podcast and Killer podcast production. On this week's episode, we are finally going to take a look at the case in Idaho. And you know the case I'm talking about. That would be the case of the Idaho Four. And these were the four victims that were tragically murdered on November 13th, uh, late at night, uh, by somebody wielding a fixed blade, according to authorities. Now, I did not want to do any episodes about this case where I speculated and Other shows have done it, and I have no problem with that whatsoever. I have a different approach. I wanted to be there when there was an arrest, and then I wanted to discuss what the next process would be in this investigation. So I waited until the arrest of Brian Koberger, which occurred last Friday, finally, uh, but the police did an incredible job with their investigation and keeping things close to the vest, So I actually applaud them very much so. And I think the families that were critical of them also have turned to the page as far as what they believe was good police work. And this week, I was hoping to get somebody that I really respect, and I was able to do that. And that was with a guest named Matt Mangino. He's been on before. He is a former prosecuting attorney for Newcastle, Pennsylvania, And he has written a book about the death penalty that came out in 2010. Now, he's also a talking head on Law & Crime, which can be found on YouTube and Facebook. And he also does local interviews with the local NBC stations. And it is very interesting to hear his insight into what these processes are coming in this investigation. Now, we know that Brian has been extradited. We know that there have been some updates in the case. And before we even got off the air today, there was an update. So the update comes, as we discussed in this episode, about the release of the affidavit. And I'm guessing this is where some of this information came from. Now, it turns out that Brian Korberger had stalked the home of the victims at least 12 times, and that's according to cell phone data pings. And he apparently turned off his phone during the homicide. Now, that is something that one would do knowing how criminology works. Now, unfortunately, he also made one major mistake, and he actually left the sheath of for the knife with his DNA on it next to one of the victims. So, clearly, not the brightest bulb in the class or the chandelier. Now, this is crazy, and <clears throat> definitely the things are breaking as We talk, and again, this is one of those cases where things are moving constantly. So now that we know a little bit more about what they knew about Brian and why they leaned on him, I think that will make for a little bit more understanding for the, I guess, listeners and for the people that were interested in this case to see how these investigators reached the conclusion that Brian Koberger was most likely their man. Now, again, this is all happening as I just recorded an episode on January 5th at 11.06 Mountain Time, and it is crazy to think that all these things are happening and we are finding out new information pretty much hourly now that he's back in Idaho and I believe has been arraigned. So... This is, again, a breaking story, but join my conversation with Matt Mangino as we break down what the next steps are in the case against Brian Koberger and justice for the four victims in the Idaho slayings. So join me as we break down this case and hear from an expert about what happens next. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of Who Killed? I am lucky enough to be joined again. This is his second appearance on Who Killed? And that is one Matthew Mangino, Matt Mangino. And he is a former uh, prosecutor from Newcastle, Pennsylvania. And he's also an author and an attorney and a talking head on television. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: It's, it's really great to be here. Unfortunately, we're here to discuss a topic that isn't so great. And that is the subject of the Idaho Four. Uh, what has your involvement been in this case? I noticed that you've been on, uh, you know, a lot of Facebook interviews. I've seen you on interviews on, uh, you know, NBC, local stations. You know, you've been pretty pretty familiar with this case from the beginning. Can you give us a little bit of background on how you got involved and exactly what it is that you do?
1: Well, you know, it is truly a horrific case, and it has captured the attention of America, you know, certainly with the length of this investigation and kind of, uh, the manner in which the the moscow police and idaho authorities kind of played it close to the vest so we so as 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 a public we really didn't know uh what was going on which led to a lot of speculation you know as a result i i, I got to do uh you know some commentary for uh law and crime on this the law and crime network and uh, a local uh NBC affiliate that i that i do some um Expert analysis for and, and even some other uh, entities like Newsy and, and and other things. So it's really been, um, you know, you know, from purely the perspective of someone involved in the legal system, kind of a fascinating evolution uh, to this case. Certainly, it's tragic, uh, and, and and as I said, it, it captured the attention. Of America, and rightfully so. You know, four college students uh, brutally murdered, and then really a, a period of time, um, you know, where we know nothing about what's going on in the case. Uh, so, so it, it has th- this this you know quick turnaround in the last week with regard to uh, the arrest, and then um, you know some of the bits and pieces that were being that are being filled in but again we, we have to be careful because we don't know that, that that these necessarily sources and statements that we're hearing right now are accurate because we haven't seen the affidavit of probable cause uh which has been sealed by the court and i would assume would be made available soon uh you know once um you know brian uh Coburger is, is, uh, arraigned in Idaho.
0: Now that's an interesting question that, uh, that brings up about the, uh, the get, I mean, they called it, you know, a gag order basically is a slang term for this type of, uh, issue. But, um, will we find out more through the release of this probable cause affidavit? I mean, do you think it will provide some sort of a map of what led them to Brian?
1: Well, I think it would. Uh, you know, typically, uh, you know, having been a prosecutor uh, for a couple of terms uh, in Western Pennsylvania and obviously uh, practicing criminal defense, uh, you know, oftentimes it was always my position as a prosecutor that I wanted to put the minimum amount of information that I could in an affidavit of probable cause. I wanted to, just to give enough information, that would carry the day in terms of getting a warrant for arrest. I don't want to, I don't want to lay my whole case out in a ten-page affidavit of probable cause. Now, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what the authorities uh, in Idaho, um, you know, have done in this case. This is this is a little different. Certainly, um, you know, they're they're kind of finding a needle in the haystack, uh, and and uh, they may want to provide. Uh, more information than normal to, to show how they've been able to find uh, you know, uh, Brian Kohlberger in, in this situation. So I think the affidavit of probable cause will provide us with additional information, may fill in some of these blanks, may fill in some of what we've heard from sources, so to speak, uh, in the last few days. Um, you know, so I, so I think it's going to certainly give us more than we know right now, but it may not be the complete picture that that some expect.
0: Well, I think that would be foolish on the part of the prosecutors to, to release the, you know, like, like you said, you don't want to put too much information in there, lay out your case and let it be picked apart, uh, before there is even, you know, a trial or a grand jury or anything along those lines. I, I find, uh, Keeping the things close to the vest, in this case, was the best thing they could have possibly done. I know they took a lot of flack from, you know, the one of the parents. And, you know, he even came out and said after the arrest, he's like, well, they didn't tell us anything about this guy. And they did a hell of a job at keeping it, you know, quiet. Because apparently they knew of this individual prior to, I mean prior to when he left and he left on December 15th and then he wasn't arrested again until or he wasn't arrested until the what the 30th, the 30th
2: or late right. on the
0: yeah late early morning on the 30th and so they were following this guy for a while and man good police work you know it takes time and for them to be able to surveil this individual. I mean, is this kind of an unprecedented thing? Does this typically do they typically spend 2 weeks surveilling somebody? I mean, they had an Indiana police officer intentionally pull him over f- from a source. You know I mean? Um right. of course, you know, don't want to speculate too much, but it's pretty that's a pretty impressive um feat in my opinion.
1: Well, it is is impressive in terms of the manner in which they were able to keep all this information confidential. Um, You know, if I were a defense attorney, um, you know, I would be uh, a bit sort of of, um, anticipating, uh, you know, what additional information they found in this two-week period. Certainly, it is um, unprecedented, uh, so to speak, but... Why did they have to do it? Uh, You know, why didn't they think two weeks ago or three weeks now before uh, Coneberger ever left Idaho that they didn't have enough to just grab him and arrest him there? You know, I look at a case like this, that if you're trying to build more evidence and surveil somebody for two weeks, you might feel like you need more um you might not feel comfortable that what you have right now is adequate in terms of probable cause or in the long run in terms of getting a conviction uh, beyond a reasonable doubt so uh, you know from having my defense hat on uh, i want to i want to look at this i want to know hey were you unsure on, on january 13th or Jane? i mean uh, december 13th or, th- or december 15th before before him and his father left Idaho that you wanted to continue this investigation and this surveillance. So, you know, it's a double edged sword and, and, and we'll see how all that sorts out.
0: Yeah. You know, that is very, it's a very good point. And I think from the defense perspective, you would think that, okay, it took you two weeks of surveillance to get the evidence you needed to support this probable cause affidavit, David, then, you know, there may, you know there's there might be some holes there and it, it is interesting to think that um they were able to do this with the help of the fbi uh other law enforcement and they were able to do this kind of on the sly and you know if brian was so smart you know he might be suspicious of this you know like if somebody's ta- tailing you or something like that, you kind of pick up on it. I guess they just, I don't know when you do something like this and you have somebody who is suspected of such a horrible crime that has literally paralyzed a community. Um, and to know about it for two weeks before you made the arrest. I don't know. Like I just, I do, I see where you're coming from with the defense perspective because it's like, well, what took so long? Mm hmm.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it it does make you pause and think, you know, what additional evidence did they think they were going to discover, you know, through surveillance. Um, You know, sometimes, you know, there, you know, people who, who commit crimes, and it could be anything from, you know, uh, a robbery to an arson to a homicide, you know, like to return to the scene of the crime. They like to to, to go back and, and just look at the flurry of police cars and forensic analysts and things like that. So maybe, maybe you're seeing if there's anything like that um, that occurred. Uh, you know, maybe you watch to see if someone flees. Not, not, you know, so, so when someone, when someone flees, you know, it can be indicative of, uh, of guilt, that, that, that they're acknowledging their guilt and, and they fled. Now, in a situation like this, I don't think that you're going to be able to say that his returning to Pennsylvania was necessarily him fleeing. Uh, he waited for a period of time. He finished the, the semester. Uh, he waited month. for his father. He waited father, apparently, who, yeah, for uh, his, He waited for his father, who, uh, as I understand, again, from sources, that he had made plans early in the year that he would fly out and drive back with him. So this is not an indication of flight. Um, that we typically might see in a situation where, where someone scrambles after a crime and and, and uh, can't be located so uh, yeah I mean it's, it's going to be interesting to see exactly you know what the uh, authorities in Idaho learned after he became a target of their investigation
0: yeah I mean the I guess the most important thing to remember is the victims in this case, and you know that that's really um the victims and the families and the friends and the community that all really i mean wow, like talk about being impacted by an awful tragedy, a city that doesn't have murders um and then you have this individual now they sources against the sources. And I hate relying too much on this because we don't know exactly what they mean. And they say that he lived within a few minutes of the this home. But that doesn't really say much other than, you know, like, did he like live down the street? You know, a few minutes could be anything. I mean, I'm a few minutes away from a thousand people. So, like, I, I don't know what to take from that. And I, I guess... In my opinion, the thing that they got him on, or at least that they narrowed the search down to him, clearly the DNA is what I think helped put this warrant into place. But the car, I mean, the car, I mean, there's only so many cars, Hyundai Elantra's, white Hyundai Elantra's, more surprisingly, more than I thought, 90 of them were registered to park on the campus of the University of Idaho. Apparently that's a very popular yeah. car there. Um, right. Right. But like you think about this individual, and you know, if they figured out it was his car and then they start looking at his background, I mean, red flag's galore, right?
1: Well yeah, I mean, uh again, you know, we're we're dealing with sources and, and, and we hear about um this uh genetic genealogy uh that was used. Uh so so you know you find uh DNA whether it be blood or other uh, type of DNA in the house that doesn't belong to any of the victims, um, you, you get that DNA, you run it through CODIS. If the defendant's never been arrested or involved in the, the legal system, you're not going to have a match. And, and it appears, again, from sources that they immediately turned to genetic uh, genealogy, which then uh, could connect this DNA with uh, certain family members, and then you start this to draw out this family tree of all possibilities, and then here you find someone nearby uh, at at Washington uh, State University, and then you then you continue to connect the dots, and he's driving a white Elantra, which is something that you saw on video uh, surveillance. So so it, you know you see how that comes together if in fact. That's the way it came together. And again, we may know more about that once this affidavit of probable cause is made public. But you could see uh, that that would be really, uh, you know, good police work, uh, you know, very timely. It, you know, it's, un, it's unusual in, in, in sort of a real-time case to use this genetic genealogy. where, where we have seen it repeatedly is in cold cases uh, where you're able to, to connect the dots, you know, maybe years after uh, a crime. Uh, But here you're using it real time, and uh, and it's kind of impressive uh, if that's the way it was done.
0: Yeah, I think it's extremely uh, impressive, and I think it's a step in a direction that I think all law enforcement probably is excited about because if you can use this in real time like they supposedly have, I think that changes a lot of investigations and the way that they can approach this kind of stuff, especially if there's an abundance of DNA that they can use to test. And I think that that stems from now, of course the reports have always been that it was a blade that committed this crime, you know, obviously the individual wielding the blade, but you know, as a criminology student, you would think this guy would have thought about what he was going to do before he did it. And the fact that he used a knife, which is traditionally known to cause DNA to be left at a scene. I mean, this really wasn't that well thought out if that was, you know, if that, if it was thought out at all, I don't know. Cause we don't know yet.
1: Well, right. So, so it's, it's going to be, uh, you know, something um, that people are going to analyze, people like you and I are going to talk about. Uh, you know, so, so he goes into a house, uh, you know, with this blade. And, you know, so, so what's his intention there? I mean, does he know these people? Is this, is this a, a group of people that he's been uh, stalking or following for whatever reason? That might be, you know, is this a random, um, you know, act? You see a couple of these uh, young women, the victims outside, uh, you know, getting a sandwich uh, at one of the vendors and you follow them home. Um, You know, if you think about it, though, if you're going to plan something like this, a massacre like this, uh, and and it's four people that you intend to basically... Ambush uh, while they're in bed. Uh, you're not going to use a gun uh, because that's probably you know when you when you shoot one of the victims, you're going to alert the others in, in the place that that
0: Fair know, point. something's amiss.
1: Uh, and then you, you have you have to confront these people. So uh, if you're if you're if you're going to kill them in their sleep, uh, you're going to do it with a means that is not going to to make a lot of noise. So I so I see using. Um, a blade or a knife is, is the way you want to go in that situation. Um, you know, here, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, uh, four people were, were massacred, but two, uh, were left unharmed. Uh, was this, was this incident interrupted in some way? Was there something that, that caused, uh, the perpetrator to, to leave quickly? Um, the DNA that was found at the crime scene um, that, that has allegedly uh, been traced uh, to the defendant. And as I understand, again, you know, through sources, um, they were able to get some sort of discarded uh, containers or, or a glass uh, or a coffee cup that the, um, the defendant used and were able to match the DNA found Within the residence, to him specifically, as the investigation uh, continued, and this is kind of a you know secret agent kind of spying work. You know, you you go into a restaurant and or go through the garbage and and and, and find a cup or glass or or something that has his uh, DNA on it. But you know, what kind of DNA was it that was discovered? There? Was it was it actually blood? Was it was it touch DNA? Uh, I, I think one of the things that, that um, people are going to want to know and, and, and investigators are ultimately going to have to divulge is, was there some contact between uh, the defendant and one or more of the victims? Okay, so, so was, there, there, was there a reason why, um, you know, the, 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 is there a motive? You know, is, is this random or, or, or is there a motive? Was there, was there something uh, between the victims and this defendant? Um, you know, so, so there's a lot of questions that, that we still don't know uh, that will give us a clearer picture of why, you know, such a heinous, um, you know, massacre would occur. Why these four would, would look to be uh, happy and successful students uh, were slaughtered
0: yeah these these four students um you know ethan and uh you know madison uh gosh i mean they were really i mean you had kaylee ethan and it's at xana i don't want to i don't want to pronounce it right incorrectly yeah. and it's just these were young bright individuals who had careers lined up i mean i believe it was kaylee that was going to be starting her career in the spring and it's just so tragic to think that they were just on the precipice of their lives beginning you know college is sort of the uh stepping stone to the next step in your life which is you know obviously that's you know, part of people you know going to college and all that. But to know that the, these people had lives, families, friends, brothers. I mean, one was a, tri- a triplet. And you know that's just tragic. He has to live with that the rest of his... His brothers have to live with that the rest of his life. And it makes you wonder whether or not it was something that he had targeted. Because these two individuals that were not... Attacked. If he had been, say, stalking the house, he would have known that there were two other people that were roommates at least. I don't know if he would have known that they were there that night because they were not in, you know, they were in another part of the house. But you know, again, if he was killing four, like, what what's not what's the other two? I don't know. <coughs> I mean, do you feel like? that's a sort of a sign that this was a targeted attack me. Cause they keep saying it's a targeted attack.
1: Well, I think, you know, one of the things that, that, that we'll all do is, you know, try to figure out why something like this happened or how could something like this happen? And unfortunately we're never going to really know the answer to that question. You know, why would, um, you know, someone who allegedly, um, you know, a, a, a Ph.D. candidate want uh, to go into a house and and slaughter these uh, four vibrant young people who, as you said, were on their way to, to starting uh, their life and their careers. Uh, you know, I don't think we're ever going to be able to make sense out of that. Uh, you know, we can figure out maybe what a motive was? Uh, we can figure out the means by which it was carried out. Uh, we can figure out how someone was able to escape that house after after massacring these students. But we're never really going to know why why something like this happens. And it's it, it's it's uh, just a complete tragedy uh, that is. As much as we try, we're never really going to make any sense out of it.
0: Yeah, you're, you're correct in that regard. Do you find it interesting at all or uh, a connection that he was studying under like one of the most famed criminologists and uh, serial killer experts in the country? I mean, is there any thought that this could have been just like testing his knowledge? I know that sounds just absolutely asinine, but you know we've seen crazy things happen before. So,
1: yeah. Well, you know that's that's you know an excellent point. Um, you know, certainly he he was studying in the field of of criminal uh, conduct, and and um, he he was you know he studied under um, a um, female professor uh, in Pennsylvania who who was renowned for. Uh, her study of of serial killers um you know that, that that's an, an excellent question and and not only you know have we saw this sort of stuff in real life uh but you know there, there have been great um um you know movies and 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 books about you know sort of the the criminal mind uh you know you know, a famous movie is Alfred Hitchcock's The Rope, where, where you know, there's two friends who decide to kill another friend just for the thrill of killing. And, and uh, you know, I, I was involved as a prosecutor in a case, uh, you know, where a 12-year-old girl uh, was murdered by uh, three, you know, uh, men and their late teens, early 20s, who, who basically said it was a thrill kill. You know, something they talked about doing. Something about, they talked about, you know, murdering somebody and, and then ultimately murdered this 12-year-old girl. So, so there are, uh, you know, in real life and in, in fiction and literature, countless situations where people have just um, killed for the thrill of killing.
0: I mean it it brings back Leopold and Loeb um you know one of the first major murder cases of any you know teenagers in this country right. you know those were kids that were think that thought they were smarter than everybody else and they wanted to pull off a murder but they were not the smartest kids in the class either because they picked somebody that they knew and you know it's like these people who do these crimes and yes they make movies about them because they do happen in real life and it it is crazy to think i mean the golden state killer had a criminology degree uh btk had a criminology degree um you know people interested in this field study that stuff i mean again if but if anybody looked at either of our uh sir you know uh searches or web services uh Maybe. they'd probably think oh man they're pretty shady too but On a different side of things, you know, we're investigating stuff, not so much uh, investigating how to commit crime. But that, to me, was something that stood out big time when I found out he was a criminology professor and or not a professor, uh, criminology student, Ph.D. student, nonetheless. Um, Gosh, it really made me think about what his motives were getting into that field. I can't. Well, right.
1: I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it's just, uh, you know, another uh, plot twist, so to speak, uh, in this case that, that really adds to this sort of um, frenzy about, you know, gaining more information and finding more out about this defendant and finding more out uh, about the case. And, and, and I think that's what you know, fuels this, um, this interest, um, because there are so many, uh, dimensions to it that, uh, still have to reveal themselves.
0: Yeah. I think, and I think the fact that it happened in a sleepy, quiet, you know, college town, you know, Moscow, Idaho, I live out West and, you know, that's up there in the peninsula of Idaho. And it's right. a, gorgeous absolutely gorgeous part of this country and to think that these people who barely ever lock their doors now lock their doors at night because well hopefully there's a little bit of peace but now they're, they're, they're scarred for life because of this and so that will probably change their routines forever and for the students that had to experience this this will stick with them for the rest of their lives as well. And so I'm just hoping that this arrest and what will be following this arrest will provide, you know, it's not so much about us. I don't care. I mean, again, I never cared that they kept things close to the vest. That was the whole point of the investigation. You don't tell people what they're doing. You don't go to the media and say, this is what we have and we hope you guys help us, you know that's magical thinking. And if you think that that's how the investigators go about their business and reassess yourself and change, change the channel, whatever you're watching, it's not correct. But the fact that they can do this stuff and, uh, you know, keep the parents at bay while they're kind of pursuing this one individual. I have to give just a, the police just a ton of credit for not being one of a police service or a police department that is used to this crime, and they called in the state police right away, which was super smart. I mean, is that, do you think that was a really smart move on their part?
1: Well, yeah, I do. Um, You know, there are many uh, communities across the country uh, that have, uh, you know, relatively small police departments. Uh, You know, people would be surprised to know in 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 Pennsylvania, I mean, we literally have hundreds of police departments that might have, you know, one full time and three part time police officers. Um, Those those police departments are are just not um, capable of handling uh, a homicide investigation, something especially something of this magnitude. Now, this police department was certain, certainly larger uh, than that, you had a college campus there. There's there, there's a lot more activity. But again, I think it it was uh, prudent to to seek as much help as you could, uh, especially when they when they you know realized the magnitude uh, of this case. And and then you know not only that they 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 were assisted by the the FBI. Uh, the FBI again, as uh, sources have said, were were basically heading up the surveillance, you know, from Idaho uh to Pennsylvania. You know, we we learn uh again from sources that that they asked for uh the vehicle to be pulled over by uh local police in Indiana. Um you know I, I ultimately I think that's something that will be closely scrutinized in this case, especially if there's anything that they they plan to use from those stops. that that they, they are pretextual stops um you know one for following too closely one for speeding i certainly would want to scrutinize both of those situations if if i was defending this case especially obviously if they were going to try to use something from those stops either something that was said or you know um you know something that was captured on their their body cam you know wounds on the hand or something like that um you know that that I think that will get some some real scrutiny.
0: That's really that's interesting and I I'd love that you have that defense defensive per, you know defense attorney's per, perspective because you're right uh those are pretextual stops which are technically not allowed to occur. So those evidence, the evidence in those cases in your opinion you could fight that.
1: Well, I would certainly look at it. I mean, you know, unfortunately, you know, a pretextual stop. I mean, so so let's say you know a police officer uh, suspects that something is awry, uh, and and there there's there's people in a the car. They they can follow that car until they do something wrong. They fail to use a turn signal, whatever the case may be, and they pull them over, and that's a pretextual stop. And 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 unfortunately, you know. The courts have said, "Yeah, you can do that." This, at least, again based on the sources, is a little different. You're in a you're you're in a patrol car, and the FBI contacts you and says, "Pull this car out. Okay, um, so now you're on the highway trying to find a a reason to pull this car over. Uh You know, I'd, I, first thing I'd want to look at is how often the Pennsylvania or the Indiana State Police pull people over for falling too closely, uh, you know, on, on the interstate highway. Uh, speeding is a different thing. How, how did you determine that speeding? Did you did you use radar? Was the was the, the car going three miles over the speed limit, which you rarely ever see? Or was it going 15 miles over the speed limit? Um, you know, so, so those are the kind of things that I would want to know. Again, only if they were attempting to use something that was captured on video or something that was said by either one. If they don't plan to use any of that, then it doesn't matter. Uh, but if they do, I think those kind of things are going to be closely, closely scrutinized.
0: Yeah. It's definitely an interesting, uh, again, another interesting plot point in this, uh, whole investigation. And when you have, you know, the FBI dictating to, Indiana state police officers, I can, you know, driven, having driven across Indiana many times, and I'm sure you have as well, you know, you rarely see a lot of police officers. And, you know, that can go all the way to Colorado, where I am. I mean, I've been through Iowa before and never even seen a cop. You know, it's <laughs> it's very possible. You know, it, it, it happens. And so I do see that your um, perspective on that uh, part of the case is certainly uh, warranted and certainly interesting too, because it, it does seem like an unusual move, but something like you would see in a movie more so than you would see in real life. I mean, we've all seen right. the digging through garbage and that kind of stuff, but this just such seems like a big operation that involved more than just one department, more than one law enforcement agency this is really impressive police work in my opinion uh with that being said from the dis- defense perspective um what would you be looking for in these next few days as far as what you like when they do bring your client in or Brian, this this client, and you know, obviously, he's not your client. But if he was your client, when they bring him in, do they give you all the information that they've had up to that point? I mean, how much disclosure do they give you?
1: Well, I would think uh, initially, um, when he is um, arraigned, a preliminary arraignment. So this this would be sort of the first step. Uh, in, in the court process, uh, he, he's going to come to court. Uh, they're going to tell him what the charges are. Uh, they're going to s- tell him that he has the right to counsel, which I think there's already a, a, uh, a woman, um, uh, Ann, I think is her name, Ann Taylor. Um, she's an experienced criminal defense attorney, a, a, a um, public defender. I believe she's already asked the police uh, to have her investigators uh, look at the house, go into the interior, of the apartment, the exterior, and things like that. So she's already uh, hit the ground running. Uh, but I think at the initially, if it's anything like Pennsylvania, the jurisdiction that I practice in, all you're going to get at that first uh, uh, preliminary arraignment is a copy of the criminal complaint, which has already been made public, and then this affidavit of probable cause. And really, that's all that you're entitled to. Uh, until you have a probable cause hearing in this case,
2: okay. and even then,
1: you're not going to be provided with additional information. Uh, occasionally, you know, a police officer might read from a report, and then you can say, "Well, listen, I if he, if he's going to read from the report, then I want a copy of the report." But oftentimes, you know, the police officers will really, you just just use that affidavit of probable cause. Uh, Because that's all you really need. The burden at that early stage of a a criminal prosecution is very low. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. So again, as I said earlier, if I'm prosecuting this case, I'm putting the least amount of evidence that I can in front of uh, the judge or magistrate, whatever it might, however it's handled in Idaho, and, uh, and, and getting this case bound to trial. Then what happens is the discovery process begins, okay. and you know formally you you know defense counsel requests uh, discovery and maybe some specific discovery if there's if there are reports if there are interviews if there're taped interviews uh, audio interviews whatever it might be then you then you begin to accumulate all that information in in preparation for trial. Wow. And and normally, there's a, a specific time limit within which um, discovery is provided, and then defense counsel has to file pretrial motions. So if you're going to challenge the evidence, if you're going to challenge the stops along the road in Indiana, if you're going to challenge uh, any statement that he might have made while he was in the custody uh, of the Pennsylvania authorities, you know, everything... It, to give you an example in pennsylvania what we refer to it as an omnibus pre-trial motion which means everything you're going to raise you got to raise it in that omnibus motion so if you want to change a venue it, it, you know all those things that, that that might come up you know suppression issues uh all those all those issues are put into that single motion and then you begin to go through uh, the pre-trial hearings you know so so you know I would assume, you know, if there's going to be a zealous defense in this case, and there's no reason not to think so, defense counsel's already gone out to look at the house and other places and has a team of investigators together, that this this process is going to is not going to move quickly.
0: Yeah, and so that I, I really want to know the ins and outs a little bit about this this public defender. Now she's renowned for being. Uh, I guess a high-quality public defender. She's, I think, uh, gotten somebody else exonerated uh, for murder. How does that go about? How does how does this individual go about acquiring her services if she's a public defender? I mean, do you get a choice in this matter? I mean, how does that work? I really don't know.
1: Yeah, so again, I, I can't speak specifically for Idaho because every state is different in terms of how they go about Um, you know, making that decision of, you know, who's going to represent who, Uh, you know, for instance, again, in Pennsylvania, uh, we're the only state in in the country that does not provide state funding for public defenders. So every individual county in Pennsylvania, there's 67 of them, they, each county has to pay all of the public defender costs. So if you can imagine uh, in a small county in Pennsylvania, uh, where 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 a you know high profile crime occurs, it could wipe the whole county out. When, 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 after you think about uh, you know criminal defense and investigators and experts and all the things that go into defending a case, because you can't say, "Oh, we're not going to give you the money to do that." I mean, you have to be able to present the best possible defense possible, and and. You know, it could cost literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, and in a small county, that could be devastating. So, you know, I know that Idaho is is different. I'm sure they get some state funding, whatever, whatever, however that works, local, state. But, but the process is, if if he's a student, so he's not working, he doesn't have income, so he's going to be eligible for a public defender. He's going to be eligible for f- free. Legal representation. You know that's a fundamental issue. Uh, you know, in the United States, the the Supreme Court has said uh, that that you know if you can't afford an attorney, an attorney will be appointed to represent you, especially in 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 a, in a capital potentially capital case like this. So, how does that happen? I don't know if the if the court appoints that person. A lot of times in, in, in counties as well is you might have a public defender's office. So you might have 10 attorneys there. And each of those attorneys are handling hundreds of cases, literally. All of a sudden, you have this huge, high-profile case. It 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 would overwhelm the public defender's office. So instead of taking a public defender out of that office and appointing them as counsel, you might have a mechanism where independent counsel is appointed to represent this person. Again, paid by the county or the state, they're a public defender, but they're independent of the public defender's office because the case of this magnitude could overwhelm the public defender's office. Again, I'm just speaking on experience from my own uh, jurisdiction, uh, but I would think that it's a similar process in Idaho.
0: That is a very insightful uh, perspective because, again, I didn't realize that when the counties had to pay for it, I did assume that the state would be the one to foot the bill. Uh, Now, I know that other states, you know, like, like you mentioned, they'll put an independent counsel in there that, you know, that makes sense. uh, Especially if you need somebody that's going to be, you know, a top notch, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, investigator lawyer uh, with all the bells and and whistles.
1: Right. And one of the other things to consider in, in a lot of states in order to say this case ultimately turns into a death penalty case, uh, in order to to um, represent somebody uh, as a, a, you know a defendant who's charged with a capital crime, you have to have certain specific training. Um, so not every lawyer can try a capital case. You have to be sort of be uh, qualified uh, to represent somebody in the capital case. Now. A lot of public defenders' offices may only have one or two attorneys that are qualified to handle death penalty cases. Uh, you know, so so it limits the 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 amount of um, available choices for those representing somebody uh, in a capital case.
0: Yeah, and you know we talked about this before we came on uh, the air, and that was about uh, how often and or I should say how. Little they use the death penalty in both Pennsylvania and Idaho. And what are the chances that this does become, you know, a capital murder case where, you know, the death penalty is definitely on the table? And um, do you see it going that way?
1: Well, you know, in order for the prosecution to pursue a death penalty, um, they, there has to be what are called aggravating circumstances. Okay, so beyond someone just committing first-degree murder, okay, you have to have certain aggravating uh, factors. So so to give you an example, some of those aggravating factors might be the age of the victim, uh, you know, whether or not this person has prior uh, felonies, uh, you know, whether or not... Um, um, you know, th- this crime was committed in the course of committing another felony. So there's a lot of aggravating factors. And that might be, you know, if you notice the charges, there's four ho- uh, homicide charges, and then there's a burglary uh, with the intent to, you know, commit serious bodily injury or something. You know, that might be there just to add that aggravating factor that's needed for purposes of the death penalty. So So there's a lot of A lot of um, aggravating factors. So, so once the 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 prosecution determines, well, we have uh, a charge of first degree murder, and we have these aggravating circumstances, then they put the defendant on notice that they're going to seek the death penalty. Okay, and and that's required. And the interesting thing about Idaho is, you know, the death penalty has been around, you know, since nineteen seventy six. The modern uh, death penalty because um you know death penalty was struck down in 1972 it was back in 1976 and um, since that time they've only executed three people in idaho um, i think the last one was in 2012 they only have eight people on death row um, so the, the question is if you seek the death penalty what's the likelihood that it's ever going to be carried out in idaho uh and certainly when you just look just look at the facts and nothing else you know the 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 heinous uh ambush and slaughter of these four students you would think hey this case cries out for the death penalty um but there are so many other factors that are involved in in the process and and you know there's other considerations you know would, would would this person plea for life without parole, at least then you have some closure and you don't take the risk of of trying this case. Um, So there's a lot of, a lot of things that are looked at and considered uh, in a capital case.
0: Yeah. I didn't realize how many things have to go into play to get a death penalty on the table regarding these aggravating circumstances, just because you look at the crime from the forefront and, of course, it's horrific. And so I think any layman is going to think, well, of course this is a def- de- you know a death penalty case. But, like you said, there are other things that go into play and things that can make it not a death penalty case and whether or not the death penalty is even worth pursuing if it's not even something that's being used. Because doesn't that just create more of a headache for one, the public, you know, defense or public, uh, I should say just the whole, the whole system gets thrown into whack and costs a lot of freaking money, you know, with all the appeals and all the things that go into, uh, you know, somebody who's on death row. Um, do you think that that would be a right? I
1: mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no question, um, that there are, there's a lot of costs. Uh, involved because uh, when someone's sentenced to death, there's really sort of like an end endless series of of appeals. Uh, you know, first you might be appealing, you know, the 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 actual conviction, and then you're appealing uh, the sentence, and then then you're appealing the method of execution, and then you're appealing that uh, you have some mental defect that prevents you from being executed so, so so those execution those appeals uh and petitions to the court uh are, are endless certainly when it when it comes to the death penalty uh and, and um the other thing is with regard to the death penalty is the the anguish for the family of the victims so so you have someone who's sentenced to death and you know repeatedly you endure these delays in these filings and you know then you have then you have executions scheduled and then and then delayed uh, you know so there's so many factors and um, in, in literally the time between conviction and actually having an execution carried out is probably more than 20 years right now on average okay and, and then when you, you know, when you mix in those situations in which defendants have just given up their appeal rights and said, uh, you know, execute me, I'm done. I need to, In fact, in Pennsylvania, we've only had three executions since 1976, just like Idaho. But the three people who have been executed in Pennsylvania were all voluntarily executed. They gave up their appeal rights and, and asked to be executed. So, so Pennsylvania has had the death penalty on the books for, you know, 150 years or whatever the, the case may be, there hasn't been an involuntary execution in Pennsylvania since 1962. So we have 140 people on death row, but we haven't involuntarily executed anybody in 60 years. I mean, so you start to think about what's the sense of the death penalty. And so you have you have all these people on death row, you have all these family members of victims who keep wondering when it, when is the, the the killer of my daughter or my father or my uh my brother when are they going to be executed so 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 it really it really creates a lot of anguish for families of victims as well
0: you know that's another way of looking at it that i hadn't thought of because you are so right those appeals those sentences you know where they actually have something set where they're going to be executed and then there's a last minute delay the emotions that these families must go through has got to be excruciating and yeah they're probably feeling a lot of the same feelings they felt when the crime was committed in the first place and do we really i mean obviously i don't have any say in this but is it worth it to put the families through that type of tragedy over and over again especially when there is proven uh, evidence that they don't really use the death penalty. My question well, next... And, and, okay, sorry.
1: You know, and, and as you know, we, we've talked about it before. You know, I have um, I wrote a book on the death penalty. Uh, yes, The Executioner's yes, Toll, yeah, 2010. And, and what I did in that book is I kind of examined uh, all the executions in a single year because, you know, most of the time... People who write about the death penalty write from a certain bias. They're for it or against it. And I thought, you know, what might be an interesting way to look at this is just let's look at every case. Let's look at the facts. Let's look at uh, the the investigations, the trials, uh, you know, right up to the right through the appeals, up to the last mills and in the, in the last words. And, and, you know, try to do it from an unbiased uh, perspective and let the reader decide whether or not they support the death penalty. One of the things that struck me in that book is how many uh, families uh, of victims don't want the death penalty or, or are opposed to execution. Uh, again, and what, what you hear is you know I don't I, you know justice has been done. He'll spend his life in prison. He can't hurt anybody else, and I can have some closure. I can put this behind me uh, as best that I can. If I have to. If I have to go through executions being scheduled and postponed, and appeals, last minute appeals stopping executions, I relive, you know, my family member, my loved ones' murder over and over and over again. So, so there there are people who acknowledge that that's not something that they want to endure, uh, but you know, they're they're in the midst of that right now and dealing with it.
0: Yeah, that book that you wrote—that is an incredible book, and I think anybody who's interested in the death penalty or the, you know, ethics and the, you know, the mechanisms that go into that would be served well serviced by picking up that book, and, uh, you know, I'm assuming that book is available at on Amazon and wherever you get your, you know, right, yeah, books.
1: Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble, uh, all, all the places you regularly find a book, so.
0: Yeah, and you—you've you, you. talked about that before. You know, that was the original conversation that we had it was about your book, and and I was so intrigued after we met at CrimeCon about that aspect of criminal uh, defense, criminal prosecution, because it impacts you too as a prosecuting attorney. You have to make these decisions, and then you are kind of stuck with what you've let the jury come up with and whether or not you feel good about it is not really your choice anymore. So I see where you're coming from when it comes down to, is this worth pursuing at the end of the day? Because really yeah, it doesn't happen all that often. And the appeals are just so oh, just, it's just rehashing everything. Every, every opportunity that they would have to make an appeal, they would take it as they have the right to do. But for the families, I don't feel that that is a fair way of of going about it. But it is fair for the person.
1: And and the thing that's interesting about it is that, um, you know, the death penalty is the most important decision that has to be made in the criminal justice system. I mean, so you're deciding whether or not, ultimately, this person is going to have to... uh, give up their life for the crime that they commit. I mean what 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 more important decision can there be? Life or death. Yet, you know, there's no really standard method in this country for determining whether or not a prosecutor will seek the death penalty. So, you know, in Pennsylvania for instance, and in and in most states, if not all, there's no process that says, well, you'll consider this when you're thinking about the death penalty or, you know, you'll you'll use this formula or There are no guidelines. So the the federal government has some, uh, you know, process where a U.S. attorney would have to get the approval of the United States uh, Attorney General to seek the death penalty. But there isn't anything like that in states. It's not like you have to go to the Attorney General of Pennsylvania or Idaho and say, can I seek the death penalty in this case? No, it's completely up to the elected or in some states appointed prosecutor if they, if that state has a death penalty, they decide without any real guidelines or structure, whether or not they're going to pursue the death penalty.
0: That's a little flingy floppy, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. That just seems a little, you know, there should be a little bit more of a roadmap on how to get to this decision, because this is a lot of pressure that you put on the jurors and you put on the prosecuting attorney. Mm -hmm. And again, without a roadmap, it's really unfair. Now, I know you've got to get going. Is there anything that you have uh, not said about the Idaho case that uh, you feel is uh, is hanging out there still?
1: Well, no, I mean, I, I anticipate that that, that that affidavit of probable cause will, will be released shortly. Um, and, you know, we're going to have a better picture uh, of what was involved in this investigation and a better picture of what evidence um, that they have and they will use to pursue a conviction in this case. You know, uh, it's always interesting, you know, when you're determining whether to charge somebody as a prosecutor. Uh, it's not, you know, the, the question is, isn't, you know, do I have enough evidence uh, for probable cause? Do I have enough evidence to get this case uh, sent to court? I think uh, ethically as a prosecutor, you have to look at every case from the outset and say, do I have enough evidence to prove this defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? That's the threshold for a prosecutor. Not, can I get this case bound to court? Not, can I get a warrant for this guy's arrest? But can I prove beyond a reasonable doubt uh, that he's guilty? And I, and I think what we're going to learn more about that shortly.
0: Yeah, I do, I do believe that we will find out more and it probably will come the day within 24 hours of this episode going on there. So uh, hopefully we will find out more now, Matt, where would uh, people be able to find you? I know you're uh, active on Twitter and um, Mm -hmm. give us uh, some of your pluggables.
1: Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm on uh, Twitter uh, and and it's, uh, you know, at Matthew T Mangino and um, you know, my blog is uh, mattmangino.com, and I, and I, Write and post every day uh, about uh, issues um, that uh, you know I think are important or people would be interested in, and and uh, even if you wanted to email me, uh, you can. Uh, the, my firm is Luxembourg Garbett Kelly and George, which is in Newcastle, and my email is m Mangino, so M M A N G I N O at L G K G. Luxembourg Garvin, Kelly and George, LGKG.com.
0: Awesome. I really think uh, you bring a great, uh, you know, I said perspective a million times in this episode, but it's so true because you see both sides of the field, and I think that is very important for the listeners and kind of the nuts and bolts of this whole case, really, because... We aren't professionals as, as podcasters. And there's a lot of people out there that are making claims that are doing things that are beyond the realm of what they should be doing. And it's important that I had somebody on that is as qualified as you to discuss this case. And I was waiting for uh, the opportunity once somebody was arrested before I put my two cents in, because again, it's not, it, it doesn't involve me. It's, it's about the investigation and getting the, conviction that's the most important thing and um matt i cannot thank you enough for coming on today
1: oh thanks so much uh it, it's always uh great to talk with you uh you have a great uh, uh program a great podcast uh that i follow religiously so uh it's it's an honor to to be on with you today
0: well thank you and i and if there is anything that comes up is it okay that uh i reach out and maybe come back on again and uh you know, discuss possible. Uh, yeah. You know what? What's the next steps are going to be once once we know more.
1: Please do. I'd lo- I'd love to come back.
0: Awesome. Many thanks to Matt Mangino for taking time out of his wild and crazy schedule to join me on Who Killed to discuss the case of the Idaho Four and the case against Brian Koberger. So let's hope that with this investigation coming somewhat to a head for the time being, uh, let's not forget about the victims, and that was Kaylee Gonclaves, and Zana uh, Carnoodle and Ethan Chapin, and Madison Mogden. So, you know, these are the people that matter, and as you know from the beginning of this episode, things are changing rapidly. Uh, By the time we ended up concluding this episode, things had already changed, meaning as far as What we knew as a public, there was more information released. I did give you some of that information. Again, it's changing rapidly, and news is being released pretty quickly at the moment. So check it out wherever you get your news. Uh, Again, thank you so much to Matt, and thank you so much to the listeners for listening this week. I wouldn't be here without you, and I promise you there will be more coverage on this case hoping to get some more guests to discuss uh, what is going to happen next. And again, you can follow me on Twitter if you want to know what's coming down the pike. And my username is at BillHuffman3. If you feel like donating to the show, you're more than welcome to with my Venmo username, and that's at Bill-Huffman-3. So again, thank you guys so much for tuning in to this week's special episode about the Idaho 4 and the arrest of one Brian Koberger, and having professional insight from one Matthew Mangino. So again, many thanks to everyone who helped make this show possible. And as always, stay healthy and be safe.
2: No necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule, history so interesting, it's criminal.